Escape Pod 420 October 31st, 2013 The Shunt Trailer by Esther Friesner Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast. This week's story, appropriately enough as it approaches Halloween, is The Shunned Trailer by Esther Friesner. Esther is a staggeringly prolific author and anthologist, and her work is noted for its wit and playful approach. She does amazing work, it's huge fun, and if you're looking for a place to start, I'd recommend Nobody's Princess, a very different take on the story of Helen of Sparta. Your narrator this week is the Dark Master himself, the man whose dread words echo through the halls of antimony, whose name is whispered by the blind monks of Fremont, and who frequently takes a PSL, no foam or cream, because he knows the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Norm Sherman. That means he gets to come home with you. So buckle up, and buckle Norm up, and prepare for the shunning, because it's story time. The Shunned Trailer by Esther M. Friesner When springtime lays its impertinent hand upon the stony bosom of New England, it is deemed no extraordinary thing for a young man of my years and education to venture forth in search of certain genial entertainments, such as may be only procured in sunnier climes than the cobbled streets of Cambridge. Alluring though the horees of sweet Radcliffe may be when snow is drifted deep over Harvard Square, when the Charles River is a ribbon of grey between icy banks, and when a man is willing to date a moose if there is an outside chance that he may get lucky, it is an indisputable law of nature that the local ladies lose their former powers to charm once the thaw sets in. Accordingly, I had determined to spend my vernal academic hiatus from the hollowed halls of Harvard in pursuit of the three B's, namely, brew, the left one, and the right one. I set out upon my pilgrimage of grace with some trepidation. Alas, my finances were not of the most robust, which situation precluded my engaging an aeroplane flight to the enchanted dream city of unknown Daytona Beach. Like some latter-day gulliard, it was my misguided intention to make so long a journey by presuming upon the kindness of strangers, and, in an extremity, upon the reliability of Shank's mare." My expedition into alien lands at first seemed blessed by my guardian gods, for I was able to engage the attentions of a carload of young ladies passing through Cambridge on their way south from the red-litten towers of Bennington. It was truly unfortunate that our jolly fellowship came to an abrupt and distasteful end when the maiden who owned our common conveyance discovered me paying my compliments to one of her comelier companions. Being of an excitable nature, she was unwilling to overlook our lack of chaperone, despite the fact that it is virtually impossible to engage a trustworthy duenna at three in the morning, when one is more or less completely naked. Thus it was that I found myself engaging alternate transportation somewhere south of our nation's capital. My luck seemed to have departed with my first ride, for the second car to offer me a lift was full of Vassar girls.' 
I came back to my senses on an isolated stretch of dirt road well below the Mason-Dixon line. Apart from a vague sense of having been thoroughly exploited in any number of ingenious ways, and the presence of a gaudy tattoo on my left shoulder which referred to Stephen Hawking as, I blush, the Mac Daddy, I had no recollection of my ordeal. In and of itself this was a mercy, save only for the fact that I likewise had no notion of where precisely I was, nor of any which direction I must now set out in order to find my way back to a more travelled road. As I stood thus lost and bewildered under the moon's indifferent cyclopean eye, the heavens grumbled their displeasure, and it began to rain like an upperclassman pissing on a flat rock. Now my need was both clear and immediate. I must find shelter from the storm. As I staggered along the dirt road, which was rapidly becoming a muddy slough beneath my Nikes, I thought I spied a light in the distance. Hastening toward it, I soon became half-blinded by the rain, which had intensified in both rapidity and vigor. Ere long I could see nothing before me but that one encouraging blur of light, and when ultimately I reached the door that it illuminated, I took no notice of my surroundings, but only pounded upon the portal with my last strength." The door swung open underneath my relenting blows, and I toppled into what I thought was a safe haven. Ah, oh, how little I knew of the nameless horrors that awaited me. And yet I must in honesty confess that even had some admonishing angel with a fiery sword appeared to forewarn me of how I stood in peril, body and soul, I was so grateful to have come in out of the rain that in all likelihood I would have replied to that winged messenger, "'Bite me.' No sooner was I under shelter, and ere I was able to take in my surroundings, than the full physical impact of my late hardship manifested itself. My limbs were seized with a mighty trembling, my body was racked by chills and fever, and through my delirium I heard myself declaiming a rather saucy sestina about Voltaire and a well-disposed merino. I had just arrived at the third iteration of Vive les Montons à la France, when overtaken by benevolent oblivion. I awoke to the smell of mildew, stale beer, and deep, fat frying. My burning eyes opened to behold a dwarfish, gray-skinned creature which hunched over a miniature gas range, its keg-like bulk swathed in a purple-flowered house dress. It clutched a plastic spatula in one paw, and with this it traced arcane symbols in an unknown alphabet within the depths of a black cast-iron skillet. Somewhere, a recording of Jeff Foxworthy routines was played at top volume. So this was hell. As I lay there, amid sheets as damp as the hands of drowned men or importunate Vassar girls, furtively observing the creature at the stove, I was ignorant that other eyes were at the same time observing me. I was made aware of this only when a voice behind me unexpectedly exclaimed, "'Look there, Ma! He's awoke!' At this, the spatula-wielding thing turned its head slowly toward me. Oh, pitying heavens! What manner of countenance now met my eyes? It was a face that might be termed human only as a courtesy. The skin thereof was, as I have already remarked, of so drab a cast as must be classified as gray. The few tufts of wiry hair atop the broad, flat head were of no perceptible color at all. The bulging eyes and wide, almost lipless mouth were betrayed features whose like I had never seen outside of my elementary biology dissection.
dissection lab. Indeed, as the creature approached me, I imagined that it was preceded by aroma of formaldehyde, although I quickly realized that this was merely the smell of breakfast. So he is, the creature said, and when it spoke I presumed from the timbre of its voice that it was a female. She smiled, a grimace that set my stomach to quaking like a blamange. In fear for my powers of peristalsis, I sought to revive my intestinal fortitude by diverting my eyes from that uncanny visage and fixing them upon some pleasanter sight. Fat chance. Above my head, a low, curved, poorly lit ceiling stretched off into ill-omened shadows, suggesting a dwelling shaped according to no sane architectural principles, but rather based on the hostess Twinkie. It was narrow to the point of inducing claustrophobia in snails, yet these tight confines had not deterred its inhabitants from packing every available inch of wall, shelf, and countertop with the wretched idols of Kitsch, demon god of yard sales. To my left, I beheld a calendar illustrated with a photo of a pig wearing lingerie. To my right loomed a row of syrupy-eyed children, pastel-colored figurines adorned with idiot simpers and odious observations like a friend returns your car keys but holds your heart. Nor might I evade the horror by staring directly overhead, for someone had affixed to the ceiling a mylar imitation of a mirror framed by the words, If you ain't smiling yet, it's not my fault. Dear God, I exclaimed, I'm in a trailer. Whoa, can't hide nothing from you, college boy, Ma said dryly. She brought the sizzling skillet almost under my nose. Hungry? Um, maybe... I replied, pulling the sheets up to my chin. I was fully in my senses now, after having had them frightened out of me, and had just become cognizant of the certitude that I had been sleeping ah natural. In a moment of painful epiphany, I knew that what I passionately desired more than anything else in the world, even beyond certain private fantasies I had long entertained concerning the Spice Girls and a large tub of chocolate frosting, was to get my pants back on and myself the hell out of here. My distress must have painted itself plain to see upon my face, for the creature snickered in a dreadfully knowing manner, and even went so far as to make a playful feint at the nether hem of my enshrouding bed linens with her spatula. It's all right, honeybug. They's just drying out some. Your jeans, that is. Won't know about them there sheets until later, if you get my drift, and I think you do. <laughs> oh, now, Ma... The same voice which earlier had declared my waking state now sounded again in my ear. The thin mattress beside me sagged as a second being, marginally nearer than the human form than Ma, plopped himself down beside me on the bed. Don't you mind her, nun. She always gets kind of brassy to guests when it's our turn to host the Sabbath prayer meeting. Sabbath prayer meeting? I echoed, or thought I did. The minor difference in our exchange eluded me, although later on its dreadful significance did not. Of course, by then, it was too late. It always is. Brassy, am I? Ma's tone hit somewhere between a first alto and a blender full of cockatiels. She boxed her offspring's ear smartly and snapped, That how I learned you manners? You keep a civil tongue in your head, boy, or I swear I'll... "'Shoot, Ma, where else would I keep it?' he replied, and with that an unimaginable stretch of flabby blue-black flesh shot out of his mouth and flew the length of the trailer, returning with terrible alacrity and a copy of TV Guide stuck to the tip. "'The?' 
he concluded as he wrestled with his tongue-tying periodical. The sight of this unmanning spectacle at first stunned me, then caused me to break into a non-stop stream of mindless chatter, alternately thanking mother and son for their philanthropy and begging them to give me back my clothing that I might no more abuse their hospitality. The monstrous pair was visibly baffled. It finally devolved upon the son to address me when he could get a word in edgewise. Friend, he said. I can tell you're a little put off by what I just done, but I can't help it. It's my nature, not the sort of thing you're used to, what with your big city ways and your canned eggnog and your edible underwear and all that other high-toned delights of civilization. But Ma and me, we're just simple, elder gods fearing country folk. Our way ain't your ways, but we don't mean you no personal harm, lest you happen to be a virgin." His voice trailed off on a hopeful note, which it was my duty to squelch at once. He was crestfallen, but continued. Oh, too bad, too bad. Anyway, I'm assuming that you're uh, mostly upset by our looks, that right? Well, you do look a bit. I groped for a way to speak accurately without insulting the folk who had literally taken me out of the rain. B-b-b-trachean. It was a good word to use, for the odds were excellent that these people had never heard it, and rather than taking umbrage would mistake it for a compliment. To my shock and chagrin, I was half wrong. The son slapped his meaty thigh and looked extraordinarily pleased. That's it, that's it, brother. You gone and hit the nail smack dab on the head. What we are, see, is new liturgy Batrachians, the only spawn of great Cthulhu who's preserved his teachings and commands as assorted hideous gibberins in the truly proper and orthodox manner. Not like them sinners up north in Innsmouth and Arkham, Ma put in scornfully. Hoity-toity little shit pokes every last one of them. Think they're so all-fired great cause they got their Dagon churches with store-bought roofs on them and a couple of stuck-up high priests that snuck their froggy little butts up through Yale Divinity. Huh. While they're no more fit to greet the rise of sunken relay from the depths than a pig to sing Kenny G's greatest hits. With those words, the full horror of my situation struck me. Cthulhu, Innsmouth, Arkham, Sunken Relay. Names, alas, whose sinister meanings were not unknown to me. When I was a boy at home and a day student at St. Dimmeldale's Prep, there had been one among my schoolmates whose pale complexion, grim mien, and demon-haunted eyes had provoked my curiosity. His name was Randolph Akeley, a boarding student who seldom spoke of his family, nor of much else save the occasional froward Latin declension. Intrigued by his reclusiveness, I resolved to learn more of him. One day I stole into his room on the pretext of borrowing a condom and nosed about. He came in and caught me studying a large, expensively framed photograph of a smiling angler displaying a fish almost as large as he himself. Nice catch, I remarked, trying to put a bold face on things. That's what my sister said when she married him. Randolph replied in his flat, affectless tone. I meant the fish, I said. And so did I. Was there anything else you wanted? I stammered out of my contrived excuse for calling upon him, and he detained me only a moment while he located the item I had requested. I was deeply startled to discover that a person of Akeley's unsociable temperament had such a thing to hand, yet there it was. It was of an unfamiliar make, with nothing upon the wrapper save the image of a black goat in one of those red circle-and-sideways-slash-symbols.' 
Later on, when again my inquisitive nature got the better of me, and I opened it, to my horror I perceived it to be a condom of alien and unknown geometry. That was enough to put paid to any further fascination young Randolph Akeley might have held for me. We never exchanged another civil word, although shortly thereafter I received in the post a crudely printed pamphlet entitled Cthulhu Awareness for the Non-Inbred Seeker. In this manner did I learn of the Elder Gods, of Nyarlathotep, of Azathoth, of Yogg-Sothoth, and Shub-Niggurath, and of dozens others whose names alone seemed to be the product of a demented mind with a bad lisp. Within the pages of that hellish tract did I read of how they had been banished for a time from the sight of man, likewise of the arcane and unspeakable worship still done to these deities from beyond the stars, worshipped by depraved, half-mad cultists whose ultimate goals were to bring about the Elder God's return from well-merited exile and to re-establish their vile reign over the earth. I returned the pamphlet to Akeley privately, in politic silence, although I did feel constrained to give him a dollar when he thrust his Save the Shoggoths collection can under my nose. At the time, it seemed a cheap price to pay for my escape. What price would such flight be now? My hosts, mother and son, were somewhat troubled by the silence whither my apprehensive recollections had deposited me. Ma shook her head and sadly said, You know, if an I had a nickel for every time I heard people like you go on all smarmy-like about how looks don't really matter and it's what's on a body's inside that counts, I'd be able to buy me a decent Sunday go-to-orgy dress, and then some, but talk's cheap, even for a bigot like you. I am not a bigot. I am a Harvard man. <laughs> if you was any more full of shit, your eyes would be brown. You ready to swear you ain't caring about half a hundred prejudicial thoughts about Butchie and me just because we happen to look like frogs and worship elder gods and... B Butchie? I repeated idiotically. It did not sound like a name proper to a potential purveyor of human sacrifice. It was the first time I had ever seen someone with gray skin blush. Well, it's not my real name, he said sullenly. Which is? Bushy swallowed hard. Kermit. The corners of his mouth turned down, which placed them somewhere in the vicinity of his knees. In the ensuing awkward silence, Ma left the trailer briefly, returning with my clothes. They smelled of sunshine, fresh air, and tide, though for all I knew it was a malign and fantastic tide that once had swirled about the spires of Great Cthulhu's blasphemous abode in Sunken Relay, and, oh, the hell with it, it was plain tide laundry detergent probably bought on sale at Walmart. They're starting to arrive, Ma said as she was tossing my apparel onto the bed. Cousin Ephraim's just now pulling in with that old family rattle trap of his, and the car don't look too good either. <laughs> now, city boy, I don't mind you talking down to me under my own roof, but I'm telling you right now I won't have you doing the same to my blood kin, nor my friends and neighbors. So if you can't get down off your high night gaunt and act mannerly, you can just hit the road right now. Otherwise, you're more than welcome to stay. Maybe we can scare you up a ride to the bus depot after. Like Butcher says, we're uh, hosting the Sabbath here today, and I wouldn't mind an extra pair of hands help me get food on the table. I'd, uh, I'd be more than happy to oblige, I said. It's the least I can do to thank you for taking me in last night. 
What evil angel possessed me to give such reply, so glibly? It must have sprung from some lingering ghost of shame for my indefensible bias against Ma and Butchie, a prejudice based solely on their looks, their creed, their economic and social standing, and their abuse of the Budweiser logo on the interior decorating motif. No sooner were the words out of my mouth than I repented them, but there could be no going back. No stronger bond exists upon this earth than the word of a Harvard man. I don't care what that self-styled Camilla mistress of pain person over there on Brattle Street claims. Ma was more than pleased. Well, that's mighty pink of you, city boy, mighty pink. Me and Butch will give you some privacy so you can get decent, and then you just come on out and join the fun. And with that, they left the trailer. I dressed with alacrity. I was not in any hurry to become part of this fun, as Ma termed it, but reasoned that the sooner I discharged my obligations, the sooner I might be on my way with a clear conscience. Fully clothed at last, I flung wide the trailer door and stepped into the nightmare. I also stepped into something else. I regret to say that this accident caused me to curse loudly enough to draw Ma's attention. God damn it, Billy Joe Tintless, you pick up after them hounds of yours, she bellowed, shying an empty bottle at the head of a snot-nosed abomination from beyond the stars, or the porch, or somewhere. As I scraped the muck from my shoes, I looked around. The space before the trailer teemed with all manner of weird beings, some of the same amphibian appearance as Ma and Butchie, others whose hair had a disquieting tendency to hiss, and still others whose skin bore the leprous cast of a fish's belly. To these, one and all, Ma extended the hand of kinship and greeted them with a careful, Hey, y'all! Grab a cold one and kick back. We'll start the nameless rats and obscene gibbering soon as the band tunes up some. Something tapped me moistly on the shoulder. I turned to face a pair of Ma's guests, beings of some abhorrent and alarming appearance as to make even Jerry Springer think twice before booking them. The male was clad in a grease-stained sweatshirt, the sleeves cut off, the front lined with faded runes proclaiming it stolen from the Miskatonic co-ed naked chugalug team. His mate sported a similar garment, its message to the world simply, I'm with Eldritch. Yo, city boy! The male said, his breath a musky compendium of all things foul and loathsome, with just a hint of cheese doodles. You seen our kid? I'm sorry. I'm a stranger here, I replied. I wouldn't know the little fellow if I tripped over him. The female snickered. Oh, if you'd done that, you'd know him all right. Right before he sucked your brains out through your eye holes. I heard that, Selma Jean. Ma's words boomed out as her formidable presence manifested among us. What you think you doing, trying to run off this nice young man when he says he'll help me set the noon meal? Maybe you don't want to eat my prize-winning barbecue after Sabbath. Your barbecue? The male licked his lips, a gesture that likewise wetted down all of his face and part of his ladies. Fortunately, this was a sight for which Butchie's earlier display of lingual excess had prepared me. Man, your barbecue kicks cloaca. Let's get this show on the road, because once we hit that last Cthulhu photogen, I'm beating feet for the table. He grabbed Selma Jean and dragged her away. Services be starting real soon, Ma informed me. I got to go, but meanwhile, why don't you see to the spread? All the stuff that's supposed to be going out on the tables in them coolers under the tree. 
There was only one tree she could mean, a titanic, gnarled, lichen-shrouded botanical anathema that only a deeply kinky druid could love. The trailer that had been my haven the previous night was, as I now saw, but one of many that nestled like scabrous mushrooms among its far-flung roots. In its distant shade reposed a number of picnic tables, a pyramid of beer kegs, and the prophesied coolers. As I approached the tree, it was my misfortunate necessity to pass between several of the other trailers, a gauntlet of visceral terror. Innumerable lawn flamingos, their plastic beaks twisted into leers of unholy malice, followed my progress with glittering evil eyes. The incessant creak, creak, creak of spinning pinwheel sunflowers thrust their droning peon to antiquity through my throbbing skull. The one ray of hope that fleetingly lightened my way, the sight of a welcomingly prosaic statuette of the kind commonly referred to as Our Lady of the Upended Bathtub, was instantly extinguished when I noticed that the supposed Madonna had more tentacles than conventional iconography generally shows. I was in a cold sweat and breathing heavily by the time I reached the coolers, but I soon stiffened my backbone and set to work. As I relieved the coolers of their contents, I was only half aware of the muted sounds of Ma's kinfolk raising their voices in worship. The glubberings and whinings, the shrieks and ululations, the bad guitar riffs and worse, banjo solos, all united in one quasi-musical discord that would probably go platinum in a heartbeat if anyone from ASCAP showed up in these parts with a tape recorder. Purty soundin', ain't it, city boy? I looked up from my labors and saw yet another of Ma's relations perched atop the table beside me. She was a young female of certain healthy thoracic dimensions that permitted me to overlook the fact that she had a mouth that even Mick Jagger would have to kiss in installments. The thin fabric of her top, one that announced my parents howled on the frozen plateau of Lang, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt, was stretched to the point where merely watching her breathe was a religious experience. Uh, how do you do? I rasped. Oh, just fine. Lesson Daddy catches me, she replied with a grin that covered two zip codes. Name's Beulah May Wait. Uglier than a shaved dog's ass, ain't it? I like my nickname better. Which is? I asked, leaving a cooler still half full of gelatin salads to look after itself. Can't hardly. My comprehension registered as a beautiful scarlet flush, which only encouraged her to straighten her shoulders in a way designed to bring down empires. Tisk, tisk, city boy. Maybe you better reel in that tongue of yours before someone mistakes you for one of the family and hauls your butt back to services. They're compulsory, you know. In that case, why aren't you over there? I countered, scrambling to recover some minuscule portion of my self-possession. Cause daddy thinks I'm doing homework. She waved a familiar black and yellow booklet at me. I never knew that Cliff's Notes published a study guide to the Necronomicon. I was about to ask my bosomy Batrachian babe where she'd purchased such an item as a clever prelude to less academic discourse. But it was not to be. My suave moves perished unmade. My cleverly seductive chit-chat never left my lips. A dire air of cryptic menace fell over the trailer park, an atmosphere redolent with such ominous significance that I found myself immobilized like one who has stumbled upon the sight of an ancient and unhallowed sacrifice or has studied for the wrong subject during finals week. Yog, have mercy, Beulah May cried, wringing her hands. 
What is it? I was at her side, ready to defend her fair person against any evil. What's wrong? There! Look there! She pointed to the north and moaned with fear. Well might she moan, for now I too saw, against a morning sky gone suddenly dark, the unmistakable funnel shape of an onrushing twister in search of its natural prey, the trailer park. The gravity of our situation had a peculiar effect on me. Rather than run away screaming in mindless panic, I felt instead washed by a great calm. Solemnly I said, Miss Waite, we must warn the others. Oh, it's no good, not a lick of good at all, she keened, clutching her hair. They're all deep into the riots by now. They won't quit in mid-yow for no one or nothing. That remains to be seen, I replied, and taking her firmly by the hand, we sought out the place where Ma and the rest were calling upon the elder gods. They were conducting their services in an open space behind my host's trailer. The same innate curiosity that in former days had made me snoop in Randolph Akeley's room now manifested itself in an unhealthy desire to view the infernal shrine to which they paid their cacophonous homage. After all, I reasoned, with a twister fast bearing down upon us, this Stygian fane might soon be literally gone with the wind." Fast in the toils of my own overweening nosiness, I wrinkled my way into the crush, Beulah May in tow, for a better look. I winkled my way out again double time, and stared at my companion. That's a wading pool in there, I stated. Uh-huh, she said. Your extended family is standing there, three deep, chanting barbaric hymns to a child's wading pool. Sometimes they do an up-tempo number two, she offered. They were standing around a child's wading pool, a child's Power Rangers wading pool, might I add, with a folding lawn chair set up in the middle of it. Well, they can't just plunk the idol of Great Cthulhu straight in the water. <laughs> that would be disrespectful. If you already got a shrine and an idol and a salaried preacher man like we do, you gotta have an altar, too. Anyone knows that. She spoke disdainfully, like every religious insider who's ever relished telling an outsider that he is ignorant, ineffectual, and inferior, a smug state of mind that allowed her to forget our eminent danger. I did not care to be condescended to by the likes of Beulah May Waite. Your shrine is a Power Ranger's waiting pool. Your altar's a folding lawn chair. Your idol's a stack of Miss Paul's frozen fish sticks boxes. And your preacher man, salaried or not, has just placed a paper party hat on top of the whole soggy mess. Well, I should hope so. It's great Cthulhu's birthday. But I guess you didn't know that either, huh, city boy? Miss Waite had fallen out of temper with my reportage of the obvious, and apparently impatience brought out a viciously mean streak in the girl, for then she sneered, I guess they just never taught you anything about that up at Yale. <clears throat> Yale? That did it. That was the straw up with which my proud, Harvard-educated camel's back would not put. Her effrontery had no excuse. I was wearing a crimson and white shirt, proud with the name of Fair Harvard. She could not hope but know the insult was deliberate, and one that I would not brook even from a woman of thrice Miss Waite's endowments. Anger kindled in my belly. Deep within my entrails I felt the old powers churn. My eyes burned with the rage of a thousand demons. Minor lightnings crackled from my fingertips, and potent words of austere and fearsome 
condemnation roared from my mouth. The worshippers around the waiting pool broke off their mesmeric chant, although the banjo player wouldn't take the hint. I blasted him to strings, splinters, and moist, froggy smithereens with a minor side spell, and inwardly thanked God that I had opted to major in something more practical than English. The amphibian congregation scattered before me in terror, hopping into their waiting vehicles and speeding off at a furious rate. Beulah May vaulted onto the back of a Harley, straddling the bitch seat behind a jacket-wearing member of Yugoth's angels. I laughed triumphantly to watch her flee my just and awesome wrath. Silly me, I'd forgotten all about the tornado. It had not forgotten about me, though. I heard its approaching roar and felt the first lashings of its captive winds at my back. I fell to my knees then and there and raised my voice. Oh, Lord, I began, my eyes tightly closed against earthly distractions. Lord, I implore thee, save me. And if it's not possible, then at least don't let me have to watch a cow go flying past before I die. If I've got to go, let me do it without suffering the indignity of any stupid movie cliches. Please. Amen. Hey, I liked that scene with the flying cow. My eyes shot open. Who's there? I demanded, though I had to shout my challenge down the throat of the screaming wind. Me, said the waiting pool. And with no more prologue than that, the tentacled countenance, leathered wings, and squamous bulk of great Cthulhu erupted from the waters. He was wearing the paper party hat and looked like a squid on a toot. Thus is it written in ancient tomes of forbidden lore. Verily, the elder gods do not fart around. This sounds better in Latin. With a single stroke of his gargantuan paw, great Cthulhu swept the tornado from the sky. A grateful hush fell upon the heavens and the earth. I tried to stammer my thanks as well, but the strain of the moment would not let me do other than raise my voice in a reedy rendition of Happy Birthday. The elder god stopped me before I got to the end of the How Old Are You Now verse. Perhaps he was sensitive about such matters. Look, don't mention it, all right? He said. I was summoned anyways. I might as well answer a prayer or two as long as I'm, you know, in the neighborhood. But I wasn't praying to you. I felt bound to point that out. Hey, Coke, Pepsi, Mickey D's, Burger King, paper, plastic, who gives a Shoggoth's ass? His bat-like wings rose and fell in an affable shrug. Besides, if you weren't praying to me now, you will be some day. I... I don't really think that I'm going to... Oh yeah, sure you will. My demurral did not seem to affect his good humor at all. Because it's, uh, it's guaranteed, you won't have a choice. Baby, it's comeback time. This comeback, it's not going to be too soon, is it? The thought of my dear mummy's reaction if I didn't get married in the Episcopal Church scared me worse than Great Cthulhu ever could. Oh, yeah, sooner than you think, college boy. I hadn't been wasting all my time dreaming the eons away and sunken, really, eh? Damn sharks keep swimming up my nose every few centuries, for one thing. I figure since I can't get any decent REM sleep anyhow, might as well get off my thumb, bring about the return of the Elder Gods, overrun the globe, reward the followers, destroy the enemies, yada yada. Is that why they were invoking you here? I asked, unable to repress a shiver. To begin the conquest of Earth? The fearsome being gave me a disbelieving look. <laughs> On my birthday? In a more amicable tone, he confided, 
Listen, college boy, these are nice folks out here. So nice that I don't have the heart to tell them how all their rights and sabbats and pep rallies and frozen icker socials won't do dick to bring back the good times. Oh, that sort of thing was all right once, but it'll take more than faith to float sunken really, eh? If you really want to accomplish something these days, you got to have the chops, the tech, the brains. And to get that, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Network, man. Network, network. He slapped one paw into the palm of the other to emphasize his words. Which is exactly what I've been doing. No more seeking out the debauched mongrel races of the world. No more scattering my spawn like there's no tomorrow. No more breeding with cannibal South Sea Islanders and barbarian savages in the cold wastes and people from Massachusetts. Nuh-uh, nah, because who knows where they've been. No, sir, nowadays I got some really scary guys on my side. And I didn't even have to say, of course I'll respect you in the morning to get them. Who are they? I demanded. What manner of men would be so degenerate, so corrupt, so possessed of an unfeeling lust for pure, ultimate, uncontested power and worldly dominion that they would betray their fellow human beings and serve you? The horrendous creature from between the nighted gulfs of space winked at me and flicked his party hat to a more rakish angle with the tip of one blood-stained claw. Tell you what, sport, gonna give you a clue. Something dropped from his paw. It splashed into the water at his feet, creating a plume of fetid smoke and a violent burbling on impact. Ere the last seething hiss died away, he was gone. I stood for a time recovering my composure. Then, with rapidly beating heart, I steeled myself to face the smoldering token with which the awful elder god had left in his wake. By inches I sidled closer to the edge of the deceptively peaceful wading pool, and with a manly effort gazed down at what reposed beneath the softly lapping waters. Oh, the accursed thing! Even now, even here, safe! Once more within fair Harvard's ivy-swathed incubation pouch, the memory thereof fills me with a gripping nausea and a terror whose claws are set into the uttermost depths of my soul. That thing, that damned clue that the departing elder god had left me was no ordinary object, but a warning to all mankind, an omen that wordlessly spoke of our predestined doom, a harbinger of the inevitable extinguishment of all things kind and warm and good and human in the earth, in our lives, and in our very hearts. For you see, it was, it was the class ring of a graduate of MIT. Halloween is one of my favorite times of year because it's when horror takes its turn in the spotlight. And make no mistake, horror enjoys its turn in the spotlight. From the skeleton costumes of children to the men and women of the world's ghost tours, leading tourists through the dark territory in return for a small fee, there's all manner of fun and games to be had on Halloween. We have a Halloween tradition at Pseudopod, the Halloween Parade. It's a celebration of the best in cinematic, comic and TV horror fiction that I've enjoyed over the last year, even if it wasn't made within that year. The twist is... No one's named. You have to guess, and this year there's a sci-fi horror version too. It's not intended as comprehensive, it's not intended as universal, it's certainly not intended to be in line with any other critics' lists for the year. This is the stuff I've seen, or read, or watched, and enjoyed. It's fun. 
So relax, because the parade's going by, and you may be surprised by who's in it. Rossum's float leads off. The old hover engines hum a bit, strain a touch too hard, and you catch a noise that sounds a little like an old combustion engine turning over, but it's gone as soon as the float is. The RUR units all wave, their smiles painted, fixed. The stalkers follow behind them and are split into two distinct groups. The younger ones are rowdy drunks, daring the world to fight them and knowing they'll win if it does. The older ones are different. They walk along, heads down, eyes everywhere. These are men who are paid to live, to spot things that will stop them getting paid. These are men who will be busy tonight. Following hard on their heels is the survivor. She's still dressed in her original fatigues. Grimy, haggard, still standing. Around her, four different crews mill. The pirates and the marines bicker, even as the prisoners pick their pockets and the merchant crew try not to remember how they died. None of them get too close to the survivor. None of them let the survivor get too far away. The survivor's eyes scan the crowd and the rest of the parade constantly, but she never looks directly at anyone, bar one man. He's leading the next float, brought to you by the combined funding of the JMC and the CEC. The float is beautiful. It's an intricate recreation of a spaceship that looks like the ribcage of a long-dead animal. The man's visor is lowered. His walk is slow, heavy. But when the survivor looks at him... They pause and nod. Kindred spirits, both far from home. A soldier, gait precise, tall, belligerent, weapon at parade rest, walks on the man's left. He refuses to see the woman and child calling out to him in the crowd. The next float is a small aircraft. It resembles a dragonfly as it bobs and flits and turns in the air. The grinning pilot, all good hair, white teeth, old-school charm, and Chuck Yeager good looks. But any time he isn't facing the crowd, he looks drawn, haunted. The woman in the co-pilot seat smiles fixedly and chivvies him along. He shakes it off, returns to his routine, and in the back seat of his aircraft, the old soldier and the young astronaut wait. He'll come around. And if he doesn't, the others will. The father and son follow along, escorting a float carrying a massive, chained-down beast. The son is nervy, attention everywhere, constantly poised for action and incapable of any as a result. The father is still. His face set. His expression almost blank. His eyes wide open. They're both ready but only one of them knows what they're ready for. As opposed to the old friends, who walk with the huge precision and care of men so drunk, all they can remember is the idea of standing. The wiry goth at their centre can't stop giggling, whilst the taller man on his right looks in the eye of every single spectator. The shorter man to his left glowers, polishes his glasses, eyes front, daring something to happen, and the two on the outside walk in absolute lockstep. No one notices. Not yet. Following them is Eve, a little taller than everyone else. 
her muscle structure perfect and dense, her hair tied back. She rides a motorbike slowly and with unconscious, absolute precision. The katana sheathed on her back is ramrod straight, but she is oddly relaxed, smiling and waving, a touch uncertainly, to the crowd. A young woman, but she has more blood on her hands than anyone else here. The two bald criminals follow along. One whirs and clicks as he moves, the exoframe bolted to his skeleton, the only thing holding him upright, the only thing holding him together. The other is precise, considered, moves only when he absolutely has to, and his eyes are covered by goggles. He never shows you his hands. Then there's the family. The grandfather, hand in hand with a serious young boy, who's just starting to grow hair. Behind him, just out of reach but always in sight, the wife and husband hold hands with their little girl. Behind them, their mirror selves follow. Older, wiser, different-haired and overcome with joy at the ending their friends have earned. Then, the ground shakes. The sort of shake that lifts you a half-inch, that triggers that sort of mammalian response that tells you to run, to hide, and wait for the predator to pass. It's only when the first colossal frame appears in the distance that you relax. They cover the ground in seconds, led by the oldest, most venerable models, and finishing with the newest dogs in the pack. They will protect us all. It only makes sense that they would have the parades back, too. It's going to be a good Halloween, because anyone trying to make it otherwise has to get through them. So there you are. Post your guesses on the discussion thread, or write them on parchment and bury them in a vacuum sealed chamber on IO. You know, whichever works. I'd recommend sending them to Mars, but as Nathan reports with feedback from episode 415, The Nightmare Lights of Mars, that might not be a good plan. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 416 on the Big-Fisted Circuit by Cat Rambo. This was the story of the pilot of a giant robot part of an arena-type giant robot fight show backed by corporate sponsors. And if you think these games end well for the impoverished robot jockeys who risk life and limb for the entertainment of the masses, well, you live in a very happy universe and I envy you. Reaction was mixed with Many voices decrying that the story did not show or even need a scene of giant robots fighting, and focused instead on the internal conflict of a character who knows her next fight is rigged and must decide whether to deliberately lose in a safe but humiliating manner that will lose her the job, or whether to play it straight and be pulped by the enemy robot when her own robot mysteriously malfunctions, earning a death payout for her family. However, the story did not actually describe said giant fist of death pulping said character, which was apparently a disappointment. Not to everyone, however. Windup said, I'm not a particular fan of the whole giant robot subgenre, it just never made sense to me. So, I was not at all disappointed by the lack of mecha-on-mecha violence. I am an absolute sucker for stories of sacrifice, especially when it takes the gritty form of getting up every day and doing what needs to be done regardless of how you feel. Accepting a situation where you know you're getting screwed over because a lousy deal is the best deal you can get right now has quite a bit of resonance for me. All of which is a way of saying that for me, this story worked. Meanwhile, Unblinking said, I felt like the story focused more on the system of mech suit drivers than most mech suit stories do, so I appreciated the change in perspective. The public completely ignores them as a component of the system, they only see the battle bots. 
but we see the untold story. I don't agree that this could be transferred to boxing or wrestling or whatever and remove the SF element entirely and leave the rest the same. A major component of this story was the sabotage of the match. They might be able to coerce her to throw the match, but it's not so easy to sabotage a boxer like that. A more mechanical sport like racing could work, but then you wouldn't have the cage match dynamic. It, it wouldn't be the same. Well, that's all we have for this week. Join us next week when we face down the comments for episode 417 and know that we are going to die. See you then! Thanks, Nathan. And thank you. As I said at the top of the last episode, the response to our financial trouble has been deeply touching. And we are humbled and frankly amazed by your generosity. Remember, just a $2 a month subscription helps us immensely. So if you liked this story and don't mind kicking us a couple of bucks or more than a couple a month, please do. In the meantime, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Escape Pod and Norm will return next week with Rachel in Love by Pat Murphy. In the meantime, our closing quote comes from none other than Dr. Byron Orpheus. This is a night of true magic. Halloween is the night we discover who we are. Are we people who make zombie armies? Are we those who condemn others? Are we beautiful children in resplendent costumes collecting candy? Are our choices in costumes provocative? Do we dress up as our ideal self? Or are we not ready to decide what to be? Do you see it now? We use this one enchanted night to perform the greatest feat of magic there is. We become ourselves. Halloween is the true magic. It is the night we discover who we really are. Preach it, Doc. In the meantime, have fun. We'll see you next week. Watching the game, smoking some bud. Are you all alone? What's up? What's up? What the? Who's that? Yo, pick up the phone. What's up? What's up? Yo, Duke, pick up the phone. Yo, what's up?
What you doing, son? Nothing. Just chilling. Killing. True, true, 